Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with the next call being on May 20th. The article for that call will be a 41-year-old African man with poorly controlled hypertension, review of patient and physician factors related to hypertension treatment adherence. Please join us. Many organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do, to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Michael Carney, first author of the article, Self-Care of Physicians, Caring for Patients at the End of Life, published in the March 18th journal of JAMA. Dr. Carney is Medical Director of Palliative Care Services at Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital, Medical Director of Visiting Nurse and Hospice Care, and Medical Director to the Anam Cara Project for Compassionate Companionship in Life and Death in Bend, Oregon. Dr. Carney has over 25 years of healthcare experience working in hospice and palliative care settings. He is an international lecturer and workshop leader. His particular areas of interest include integrated whole-person health care and the psychological and existential aspects of end-of-life care, and he has written two books that explore these topics. Previously, he served as director of Our Lady's Hospice, Harold's Cross in Dublin, Ireland. He was also associate professor of medicine at University College Dublin and Trinity College Dublin and a visiting professor at McGill Medical School in Montreal. We're delighted to have you, Dr. Carney. Welcome. Thank you so much. As a moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Carney's research with a goal of driving improvement uh, in healthcare delivery settings based on this article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from the author about research findings that can improve patient care. Together, Dr. Carney and I will help you translate this research into improvements in practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Carney will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings. I will then take a few moments to draw some of the implications for the real-world practice setting. I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. It's a great forum in which you get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but also offering your experience in this call will be invaluable. We have approximately 50 lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on these sites. Now let's get started. Let me again welcome Dr. Kearney, who will provide an article, an overview of his or her recent article. Dr. Carney. Uh, thank you, David. Um, before I begin my overview, I would just like, to, first of all, to notify the audience that I have 
nothing to disclose in terms of either financial support or conflict of interest in terms of writing of this article. Um, and I'd also just like briefly to take this opportunity to uh, acknowledge the fact that this article is the last in the series of uh, perspectives on care at the end of life, a series of articles that have been uh, published in JAMA over the past nine years, a total of 42 articles, 23 codas, um, and uh, that, uh, that this uh, series of articles has, has received ongoing support uh, from uh, the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the California Healthcare Foundation, and the Archstone Foundation, who have supported the University of California um, in, in, in working with JAMA on this series. Uh, so I, what I'd like to do um, to begin with is um, I'd like to look um, uh, briefly at the two recognized, well-recognized syndromes uh, of clinician stress, that is burnout and compassion fatigue. Uh, looking at how they both differ in etiology and presentation. Burnout results from stresses that arise from the clinician's interaction with their work environment. Um, that interaction between clinician um, and the organization, the administration, but also a lot of the logistical aspects of the work uh, uh, the clinician uh, has to do generates the stress that leads potentially to burnout. In contrast, compassion fatigue evolves specifically from the relationship between the clinician and the patient. Uh, so this is something very different. This is the encounter at a clinical level uh, with the patient and arises from that, account, that encounter. In terms of presentation, uh, the three, three key dimensions of burnout that have been identified by Maslach um, are firstly overwhelming emotional and physical exhaustion. Secondly, what's termed depersonalization, um, referring here uh, particularly to feelings of cynicism and detachment from the job. Thirdly, uh, a lack of personal accomplishment, a sense of, of not achieving one's goals, a sense of ineffectiveness. At an individual level, some of the symptoms and signs of burnout can appear as poor judgment, over-identification or over-involvement, boundary violations, um, a tendency towards perfectionism and rigidity, in interpersonal conflicts, uh, addictive behaviors, frequent illness, particularly headaches, gastrointestinal disturbances, immune system impairment, it may impact on an individual's um, philosophy or their whole sense of meaning of life. Uh, an individual may find themselves questioning prior religious beliefs, for example. Burnout at a team or group level uh, can look uh, slightly different. It can appear as low morale among the individuals working in the team, high job turnover, impaired job performance, um, decreased empathy, increased absenteeism, and again, an increase in staff conflicts. Presentation of uh, compassion fatigue has some overlapping, but also some distinct symptoms. 
which makes sense if we realize that compassion fatigue is also known as secondary traumatic stress disorder because here the clinician suffers trauma symptoms by vicariously experiencing another's trauma or suffering. And so the symptoms and signs of compassion fatigue are effectively the symptoms and signs uh, that one sees in PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. That is, symptoms of increased arousal, such as irritability, hypervigilance, symptoms of re-experiencing where intrusive thoughts or perhaps nightmares um, related to traumatic events in, in one's clinical experience. Uh, and thirdly, um, avoidance, particularly avoidance of emotionally difficult clinical situations, not wanting to go there again. In these conceptualizations and definitions of compassion fatigue, um, what's implicit uh, is that empathy and the empathic engagement, while clearly being a positive thing, um, is also a vulnerability for the clinician. Um, and is actually seen as a key causal factor in compassion fatigue. Figley, one of the uh, key researchers on uh, compassion fatigue as secondary traumatic stress disorder, writes, the caregiver's empathy level with the traumatized individual plays a significant role in the transmission. So what are some established self-care strategies that one can look to to mitigate uh, burnout and compassion fatigue. One can look to adequate supervision and mentoring, sustainable workload, promotion of feelings of choice and reward has been identified as a, as a very important factor. That one feels the support of the community or the organization one is working within. That one sees um, a promotion of fairness and justice at play in the workplace, training and communication skills, continuing educational activities and participation in research, and the practice of self-care activities. What are implicit in some of these self-care strategies are a recognition of the importance of having clear professional boundaries, um, an acknowledgement of the value of developing self-care activities, though it has to be added that this is seen as something that mainly should take place outside the workplace and is also probably fair to say is usually seen as an individual's responsibility. What we suggest is that self-care strategies are more likely to be successful if, firstly, they're combined with clinician self-awareness which we present here as a cognitive skill and a meta-self-care strategy, about which I'll say more shortly. Self-care is more likely to be successful if it's seen as a joint responsibility between the individual and the organization in which they work. And thirdly, if the organization recognizes self-care as a good business strategy with potential benefits, not just for clinicians, but also for patients and indeed for the organization. So to say a little more about uh, what we mean by self-awareness. Well, we define self-awareness as a combination of two factors, self-knowledge, clinician, physician, know thyself, 
uh, and the development of dual awareness, which is a cognitive skill and a stance that permits the clinician to simultaneously attend to and monitor the needs of the patient and or the work environment and his or her own subjective experience. In our paper, we refer to a qualitative study by Harrison and Wellwood, which looks at a group of peer-nominated exemplary mental health therapists who were thriving in their work with traumatized clients. In other words, they were exposed to a lot of secondary traumatization, or at least to a lot of trauma within their clients, and, and paradoxically, they weren't being uh, secondarily traumatized. They were, they were uh, on the contrary, thriving in their work. So in this study, they um, did a, an analysis of what practices these therapists used um, that enhanced their professional satisfaction and helped prevent uh, or mitigate compassion fatigue. And they identify a number of protective practices in their paper but in particular, they noted that trauma therapists who engaged in what they called exquisite empathy were, to quote them, invigorated rather than depleted by their intimate professional connections with traumatized clients and protected against compassion fatigue and burnout. So a very different take on the view of empathy as, uh, as, this, as the clinician's Achilles heel or, or vulnerable, uh, vulnerability. Um, here, the actual empathic connection is a source of regeneration and renewal. They talk about exquisite empathy as being a clinician who is highly present, sensitively attuned, well-boundaried, and heartfelt um, in their empathic engagement. And they conclude that the practice of exquisite empathy is facilitated by clinician self-awareness. And just to reflect for a moment on the applicability of exquisite empathy, because I think we're talking here about a form of relating um, and clinical practice that's beneficial both to the clinician and the patient. It's an in-situ self-care practice. It's actually something that happens in the work that can be replenishing rather than depleting. Um, however, I think its relevance goes beyond the clinical that is describing a mode of relationship that is egalitarian, that is respectful, and that's going to be beneficial for relationships with peers, colleagues, and indeed throughout the organization. So if self-awareness is so pivotal, not just to exquisite empathy, but to the practice of effective self-care, how can self-awareness be enhanced in uh, caregivers and within an organization? Well, some established methods of doing this, uh, touched on some of these already, supervision and mentoring, peer group support, uh, where we can share stories of challenging situations, educational initiatives, research initiatives, um, having psychotherapy counseling services available to staff, and indeed spiritual direction. But two, um, two approaches that we focus on in our article that are uh, strongly supported by empiric data are mindfulness meditation and reflective writing. And just very briefly, um, mindfulness meditation refers to a process of developing careful attention to minute shifts in body, mind, emotion, and one's environment while holding a kind, non-judgmental attitude towards oneself and others. And it's been shown um, 
in several studies to reduce stress, to develop dual awareness, to increase self-compassion and a sense of well-being, as well as to increase empathy for others. Shapiro describes a matched randomized trial examining the impact of an eight-week mindfulness-based intervention on medical and pre-medical students. The mindfulness group reported significantly less depression and anxiety and greater empathy compared to a weightless control group, despite the fact that the post-intervention data acquisition coincided with the participants' school examinations. By reflective writing, we're talking about writing in a reflective and emotionally expressive way. Um, and this is another form of both self-care uh, and enhancing self-awareness. And there are studies demonstrating its somatic and psychological benefits and how it's now been extended to promote reflection and empathic engagement in clinicians. Rita Charon, in her work at Columbia, has introduced a method called parallel charting in medical, training, uh, medical training that involves medical students recording their personal thoughts and feelings in a journal in parallel to the objective clinical data they document in the patient's medical records. Students then meet on a regular basis to read their accounts to each other. So as Charon writes, when you write, you discover not only what the patient is thinking and feeling, but what you are thinking and feeling. So um, in conclusion, what are some of the benefits of self-awareness-based self-care? Firstly, for the clinician, well, at a, an everyday bedside level, they allow the clinician to remain present in the fullest sense of the term to another's suffering. Um, they enable the clinician to recognize when she or he is at one's limits. It enables, uh, it gives the ability to recognize when work is beginning to adversely affect one's health, one's personal and professional relationships. And it gives the ability to know what one needs to do to regenerate oneself. So some of the benefits of self-awareness uh, based self-care for the patient are, well, the patient is at the receiving end of the clinician um, and is at the receiving end of exquisite empathy and is encountering a clinician who is present in the fullest sense of the term, who is empathic and who is effective. For the organization, some of the benefits of self-awareness-based self-care are increased staff retention, reduced absenteeism, increased employee morale in terms of well-being, job satisfaction, compassion satisfaction, reduced employees' conflicts, employees who are present, empathic, effective, and very importantly, increased patient and family satisfaction. So to finish, what can be done at an organizational level to implement these findings? I would suggest the first point is to realize that burnout and compassion fatigue are common. Prevalence of burnout is about 30% in UK physicians and nurses. Uh, the prevalence of compassion fatigue is usually given as somewhere between 6 and 8%. So these are common syndromes. They're also very different, and we need to recognize their difference in terms of mitigating and preventing. Secondly, realize that Investment in clinicians' self-awareness and self-care is good business strategy with benefits for staff, clients, and the healthcare organization. 
Thirdly, acknowledge that self-care is a joint responsibility between organization and employees. One suggestion as to what organizations could do is to consider have employees complete a self-care inventory. How do, how do you take care of yourself? Uh, and what strategies do you use both in the workplace and outside the workplace? That's an intervention in itself that's likely to increase self-awareness and possibly um, lead to implementation of self-care practices. And then in practical ways, support self-awareness-based self-care in the workplace. A lot of these are already in place, clinical supervision and mentoring. Consider peer support groups. Consider making, making a mindfulness meditation training available to staff having a reflective writing group available within the institution, educational initiatives, counseling services. And finally, understand that self-care practices can be woven into the fabric of clinical practice in very simple and effective ways to the benefit of all if their value is appreciated and supported. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Carney. Thank you for your, um, number one, your outstanding work um, and I am struck by, number one, how different this is from most of the articles I read in JAMA, uh, but also how relevant this is in our world today. Uh, I mean, I believe these are issues um, that are tremendously important. Uh, I think at one level they reflect the values that we should bring to healthcare, and of course by bringing them to ourselves, I, I think that is, of course, consistent. Um, but it begins to address some of the very important challenges that we're facing, um, including both the effectiveness clinicians uh, and the available uh, supply of clinicians given the impending workforce shortages. So I'm just delighted to see your work. And again, I think it comes at a very important time. Thank you. Um, it, you're most welcome. And it seems not only um, to be aligned in terms of the values that healthcare aspires to, but it also just seems intuitively correct. So um, I'm eager to know now how we begin to make this a reality in, in our world. And I would add my own editorial comment that I think many of the things that you're proposing uh, run somewhat in conflict with the physician culture, at least the physician culture in the States. And so I'd maybe ask you to briefly comment on that, and then we'll move over to questions from our callers. Thank you, David. Yeah, I, I, I agree with your last, well, I agree with all your points, but particularly your last point that I think this is, is uh, yeah, countercultural. Um, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, how we cope as physicians um, in terms of self-care has been summarized in the phrase, uh, the psychology of postponement, that we postpone attending to our own needs, significant relationships, and other sources of renewal, uh, until the work is done and the next professional hurdle is achieved. And we certainly don't prioritize it, um, uh, you know, alongside, uh, give it the same priority as we do uh, other aspects of our work. Um, but I think the, the actual figures of the prevalence of burnout are actually quite alarming. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if they're accurate, it suggests that a lot of people are, are at work, uh, but not fully at work, um, because one of the key characteristics of burnout is, is one might be there in body, but uh, one may be detached and, and, and emotionally unavailable, um, 
And so, and, and not only that, but that it begins to impact on one's effectiveness uh, and one's actual practice. Sure. So this, this postponement of gratification or postponement of self-care, we may do that not only at our detriment, but at the detriment of our patients. Exactly. And I think uh, one phrase that's been kind of really important for me in thinking on this topic over the, over the years is, uh, is a phrase uh, from Michael Balint, the English psychiatrist, the founder of Balint Groups, um, mm-hmm. who says, you know, we are the medicine. Uh-huh. That we as physicians are the most potent medicine we give our patients, and and so uh, I think part of it is about how we revision self-care, um, because I think part of the culture is you know we're looking after patients with their great needs under a lot of duress, with you know sometimes you know um, limited resources. Um, surely that takes priority over our, our our own needs, and of course there is uh, a question of balance there. But if one if one realizes that that actually it's not just about what we do, but about how we do what we do, that impacts on not just quality but effectiveness. Um, perhaps we can begin to see this this area differently. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And on that comment, I'd like to go now uh, to questions from you, our callers. Uh, your, your questions can include anything from the implications of the research. Um, how to use this information in making improvements in our practice. And certainly we'd love to welcome your examples of either what you have done in this regard or what you're thinking or planning to do. So now I'd like to turn the call uh, back over to our operator who will help us uh, get ready for questions. And while we're waiting for questions, I want to ask you one more thing. A, A theme I heard a couple times in your brief summary was how important boundaries are both in the context of, I think, preventing burnout and in the uh, boundaries uh, in, in terms of presenting, preventing compassion fatigue. Can you give us some short comments on, on how you've seen uh, the boundaries established uh, and, and how that's been done well in your experience? Uh, yes, and, and, and this is how um, this topic really uh, works alongside developing professionalism and ideas of professionalism within within medicine and um, as, as part of the physician mandate. Um, I, I think what I'd like to also uh, kind of point to is how the um, within the the view of compassion fatigue um, as something that is uh, a phenomenon that we're vulnerable to because of the empathic connection, um, well, actually having, in a sense, having too rigid boundaries uh, as a form of protection uh, may have a protective function, but may also um, affect the empathic engagement, making for a clinician who is, you know, well protected but detached, uh, and that may uh, give a less satisfactory experience to our patients, uh, but also may be less satisfying for the uh, for the uh, clinicians, um, one one of the studies that we uh, that we mentioned, an interesting one in the in the paper, is a, a, a paper by, um, if I remember correctly, uh, by Brown and his colleagues, and it, it, they looked at physicians who saw their mandate in purely um, biomedical terms. Um, 
and in terms of end-of-life care and compared it to physicians who saw their mandate as, yes, biomedical, but also including the psychosocial. And they found that uh, physicians who, um, who saw it in the former way um, had less job satisfaction than did physicians who included the psychosocial in their mandate. Um, so the question of boundaries um, are, are important as protection, but uh, the point we try to develop, and, and I try to emphasize in my brief summary, if we, if, if we develop this skill of self-awareness, this meta-skill of self-awareness, it allows us to maintain very clear boundaries but at the same time, it allows those boundaries to be porous and allows for an engagement with our clients so we can be protected but not detached. Wonderful. And so that does seem like um, really a, a fine balance we need to strike between detachment um, and over-engagement. Okay. Well, I'd like to go now to Tulari and see if we have any questions in the queue. Yes, we do have a question from Karen Hamilton with Cottage Health System. Great. Go ahead, Karen. Hi. Hi, Dr. Carney. Hi. Um, Hello. You know, my question may be a little come from a different slant. Um, I work with the medical staff here at Cottage Health System, and um, we're somewhat of a unique culture, as I'm sure everybody feels they're unique. But we have, um, uh, and the, my, one of my roles with the physicians is helping with um, what ultimately we don't want to happen is a code of conduct or a behavioral issue, and I just see this all coming from possible burnout and compassion fatigue and how we can maybe get to the root of that and help before it becomes an issue with the physician and they're having to be sent a letter and it becomes um, it forced upon them. How could we... Um, implement um, some practices that you're suggesting. So, so wonderful. So your question, just to paraphrase it, is not just in the context of preserving physician performance in the clinical sense, really keeping physicians away from troubles down the road. And the question for Dr. Carney is how does uh, these tools such as um, increasing self-awareness, would that perhaps prevent some of the need for the work that you do? Yes, exactly. Thanks. Good. Thank okay. you. Go ahead, Dr. Carney. Thank you for that question. Um, and yeah, I think again, you highlight the very important point is that I, I think there is uh, that David's already alluded to that there is a sort of a, a culture that's within medicine that is quite resistant to go, resistant to going into this area. Um, I, I think that's part of how we cope, and it's part as doctors, as physicians. Um, it's part of our, uh, of our of our kind of built-in protection, um, and so there's a certain resistance, perhaps, to acknowledging that some of this may be related to um, to issues around burnout. Um, I mean, what, what I find hopeful is, you know, looking at, at some of the initiatives that are that are now underway um, within uh, the, for example, here in California. Um, the, the California um, Medical Board uh, having a, a, well, a physician wellness program and, and, and promoting physician wellness um, and uh, hospitals and hospital systems actually having uh, physician wellness committees 
Um, so there you have, a, you know, you have a group of physicians thinking about how to address these uh, these issues in a language uh, that physicians may possibly be open and receptive to, because I think that's very challenging. Um, and uh, I think if at an organizational level, I mean, if this really is, I mean, if, if this were a physical illness, we'd be talking about epidemic proportions, I think, you know, a prevalence of 30% among U.S. physicians and nurses. Um, and uh, how to address this? I mean, I think... A simple way um, uh, for for an organization to go about this may be, uh, you know, perhaps coming from a stance of the importance of physician wellness and the care in the physician in physician wellness, is is asking um, physicians to uh, putting together some sort of uh, self care inventory, as I mentioned in my summary. Um, so just getting people to think about this. Um, begins a process of self-reflection that can possibly lead to greater self-awareness. Um, as part of our putting this paper together, we did just that. We actually um, spoke to and uh, contacted a number of colleagues and said, look, you've been doing this work for a long time. You seem to have found a way of not just surviving in your work but actually thriving in your work. Can you share with us some of your self-care practices that you've built into your everyday, not just what you do when you leave work, but what you actually do as part of your working day. And um, uh, folks came back with some really interesting suggestions. Huh. So some of this is really not just, this is really a collection of best practices that you've observed in the, in, in the world. Exactly. Wonderful. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for your question, and, and I want to actually, um, in, in your examples, that there is certainly these programs being developed um, as we speak. I'd like to invite any callers who are aware of any programs that exist or that are in development uh, that seem to have been effective uh, in terms of preventing or treating either the burnout or the compassion fatigue that Dr. Carney is, is speaking of. Um, I'd like to check back in with Talari and see if we have any more questions in the queue at this time. Yes, it looks like we have a question from Michael Krasner with the University of Rochester. Wonderful. Go ahead, Michael. Uh, hi. Thank you, and uh, I really enjoy your writings, uh, Dr. Kearney, especially, the, especially Mortally Wounded, which has uh, just been really helpful for me. Uh, I just did want to mention something that we're doing and we've doing and completed recently in Rochester and then uh, pose a question to Dr. Kearney. This is a, um, a year-long training program uh, called, we call it Mindful Communication, and we had some funding from a foundation, and we trained 70 primary care doctors for a year in mindfulness practices, uh, self-awareness practices using mindfulness meditation, uh, using narrative writing of clinical experiences built around themes, and then using a form of dialogue uh, that really comes out of the business world <clears throat> that is an approach to change management, a positive strength-based approach to change management called appreciative inquiry. And we sort of combine these three uh, technologies, if you will, into this program. And um, we actually uh, have submitted a, a preliminary report uh, that uh, we're hoping to get published about uh, fairly significant effects on burnout among these primary care physicians which started, who started the program at fairly high levels of burnout using the MASLAC burnout inventory, um, empathy, 
um, something called a physician's belief scale, which was a way that physicians orient themselves toward their patients. This is a relational context of uh, a psychosocial orientation. And, um, and in my experience, uh, among other things that we measured, including a profile of mood states and symptom, uh, fairly high levels of anxiety, anger, low levels of vigor, uh, high levels of depression in this population that showed significant improvements. And um, what was interesting to me, this has come out of uh, years of teaching uh, both lay and health professionals uh, in mindfulness-based stress reduction. I'm, a, I'm an internist here. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that... Um, the community actually takes very well to these sort of self-awareness uh, um, programs. And um, what I was interested in was something that came out of uh, our reflections and discussions in some in a formalized way with participants. We've uh, been formally interviewing a, a number of participants, a, a, a large number of them who went through the program and asking them a lot of questions about it. And, and um, one of the themes that really has come to the surface, which... Uh, is and isn't surprising is community and uh, isolation and loneliness. And so I just wanted to uh, share what we were doing here and then ask uh, Dr. Kearney about his own reflections on uh, this sense of loneliness among uh, providers, this isolation and words that people use like feeling like they're in silos uh, and then the sense of the place of community uh, in um, addressing issues of burnout and compassion fatigue. Um, Wonderful. Well, thank thank you for sharing your experiences, and good luck with getting your work published. I think we're all eager to have access to that. Uh, And your question for Dr. Carney. Dr. Carney, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, Thank you, Michael. Yeah, and that that sounds like really interesting um, work you're doing, and um, really interested to see your your paper when it's when it's published. and yeah, your comment about isolation—I I, 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 I really understand and and, and agree with that. Um, uh, and it was interesting, just an, an anecdote. Um, the other day, I was standing at the coffee cart here uh, at Cottage Hospital, and um, one of our hospitalists came up and said, "Oh, I saw your article and I read it." And compassion fatigue. She says that 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 describes exactly where. Uh, what's happening for me and and then started to talk about her experience but what struck me not only um, how much distress but how the distress was compounded um, by being so alone um, with that experience and not really having a group of uh, a group of colleagues or having community um, to to listen to that to hear that to validate that um, Again, at an anecdotal level, I, uh, as I as I was working on this article, I was aware that the work we do as a palliative care service here in our hospital is is really a, a recipe for burnout, particularly in terms of a lot of the kind of potential organizational stress. Um, but I think the reason why our team has not only not burnt out, but that has uh, has uh, is not just surviving but is thriving is because every day um at at midday or a little after midday today um we meet for 30 minutes and it's not just um talking through the patients on our list it's 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 about team building it's about listening to each other um uh you know it's it's about having opportunity to talk uh, 
not just about our patient psychosocial issues, but actually having some space um, uh, at certain of, of those meetings to also talk about our own um, our own feelings generated by the clinical encounters, generated by the work interactions. And it's just that sense of community and that com- community containing that makes uh, the work possible and I think the work effective, but also allows us to kind of survive in, a, in an environment that is a recipe for burnout. Wonderful. Well, thank you. So you're really reinforcing the notion that community is tremendously important. Tremendously important. And, and of course, if you think of, uh, you know, burnout in terms of both the depersonalization but also the emotional and physical exhaustion, bo- both lead to um, to detachment. And uh-huh. I think that combines, uh, compounds the, the isolation. So not only is there not a culture of community easily available in a lot of situations, but the actual burnout process itself is feeding that isolation. Wonderful. And the other comment you made is that actually making time to have those conversations is critical, and that loops back to what the organizations can do, what our culture needs to do. That's right. Is is to place value on time speaking with each other, not just on time that leads to patient contact or billable hours. Right. So, again, thank you for your question and comment. Tulari, do we have any more uh, questions in the queue? Yes, we do have a question uh, from John Vandewall with InTouch Consulting. Great. Thank you. Go ahead, John. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Kearney, um, I'm a practicing physician, but I practice in the field that you've written about, and that is helping uh, physicians and nurses in the situations that they're in. Oh, okay. But first of all, could you, when you mentioned the number of 30, 30% of physicians and nurses in the UK that have burnout, at what time span does that start occurring? In terms of their career? Yes, age in their career, how many years have they been in the career? Um, well, first of all, those figures I quoted um, are, um, th- those are figures for UK, or US, sorry, US physicians and, and nurses. Maybe I said UK, but I, it was it's actually in the US. Um, and my understanding is that figures in the UK and in Europe generally are slightly lower um, for burnout. But um, to answer your question, um, what emerges from the literature is that this begins very early in in, in medical career. Um, burnout is actually described among medical students. Um, in, in in many studies, the prevalence of burnout is highest in house staff and in residents. Um, and actually, there's some studies that show that burnout, um, uh, the prevalence of burnout, reduces over time. Um, and that burnout is less prevalent in more experienced clinicians than it is in, in, uh, in, in newly qualified and, long, uh, and, and young physicians. So it seems that young physicians are particularly vulnerable to burnout. Okay. The, the other piece of that is uh, in a lot of our consulting in the hospitals, it presents itself in a different way, and it's usually by way of cynicism, lack yeah. of engagement, um, and when the physicians or the nurses are invited to participate in other than clinical interventions, they are very reluctant. Right, yeah. Um, and that's one of the major challenges we face. And as being a physician myself and being uh, sort of aware of that, how much of, I mean, this is the end result that we're seeing. How much of the cause or the root cause is related to the way we are set up as students coming into the community as doctors 
um, and seeing ourselves as being somewhat privileged, resulting in, uh, I'm going to call this a, a sort of putting ourselves on the pedestal or some sense of arrogance, which disengages us from looking at the well-being of the patient in general over time, rather than just the clinical well-being of the patient. Uh, thank you, John. I mean, I think that's a very, very interesting and, 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 and good point that I think the roots of burnout are what sets us up for burnout could be in some ways traced back to, to our medical education. I agree. Um, and, and I think part of the problem there is seeing, uh, you know, a lot of medical education is organized uh, in terms of seeing the medical mandate in purely biomedical terms and that what we need to learn is, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of data, and we need to learn an important skill set. But really, what's implicit in that is that the personality, the experience, just the the, the wisdom of the person who is the medical student is actually really of of secondary importance. If that, it's all about the skills and the knowledge. And I think one of the beauties of an initiative like what. Uh, Rita Charon is doing in her program at Columbia with parallel charting is that medical students by documenting in their in their journals as they go through medical school they come out of a clinical encounter they write in the medical notes the objective details of their encounter but then they go to their their journal and they write in there the emotional and um, you know, other other aspects of the encounter that don't fit in the medical notes, but that fit in the journal and that then have space in their meetings, their regular meetings with their peer group. And what you're doing there is you're including the subjectivity of the medical student, which is otherwise being excluded. Mm -hmm. And how can we talk about whole person care if we actually are just educating one aspect of, of medical students? And I, and I agree, John. I think that that makes us a lot more vulnerable for for burnout. And then when it gets to the stage of the cynicism you describe, which, you know, the depersonalization and cynicism, um, it's very hard to find a language to engage um, physicians at that point, which I think comes back to a point raised by an earlier, earlier questioner. Um, so I think that's a particularly challenging one. Mm-hmm. Well, and if I may jump in here, you know, you raised the question, how can we engage in whole person care um, with the biomedical approach? How can we succeed at whole person care if we're not even able to do that for ourselves or aren't even aware of the importance of doing that for ourselves? Exactly, David. And I think what, what at an organizational level, um, whole person care not only makes for for clinicians, physicians who are more fully there. Um, it makes for uh, more satisfied patients and families um, and more effective outcomes. Wonderful. Well, John, I want to thank you for your question. I want to see if we can uh, have time for one or two more callers here. So, again, thank you, John. Tulare, do we have any more uh, questioners on the line? I have a question from Norman Charney with Healthcare for the 21st Century. Great. Thank you. Go ahead, Norman. Hi. I, I think you just touched on the issue that I would wanted to raise, and, and it's basically uh, physician heal thyself. Uh, we don't teach medical students, at least I haven't seen it in medical school, how to take care of yourself, which would be a good way to, to create an example for your patients. For example, you know, a proper diet, yeah. proper rest, exercise, yoga, uh, meditation, all of those things that will 
stabilize an individual who has to undergo stressful situations and makes the body more able to cope with that stress. Good, yeah, good point, Norman. And and I'm I'm thinking as as a parent of two teenagers, the importance of modeling behavior. I keep getting reminded of the importance of that. Perhaps we should be doing that better as practitioners. Uh, Michael, what do you have to say? Um, yeah, yeah, sorry, David. I just um, this was distracted by something here a moment ago. I'm sorry. Oh no, no problem. The, the the comment from Norman was really that of. Um, heal thyself, and that from everything from exercise to diet to the other aspects of self-care that you've been discussing, um, the importance of that in terms of being um, both effective clinician, clinicians and um, being able yeah. to sustain ourselves. I totally, totally agree. I totally agree with Norman's comment. Um, um, and again, I think it's got to, we got to look at um, at the culture of medicine, and and look at the at, at, at not just recognize the psychology of postponement um, uh, and how we we really don't prioritize needs, but see how we need to go back in much earlier stages um, into medical training, and that it becomes implicit. Um, and, and just just to comment, I, I had the opportunity of working for two years with Professor Balfour Mount and his group at uh, and the and the medical school at McGill in Montreal and what we did during those two years is we were looking at with the uh, with the medical faculty at the medical curriculum and 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 really sort of coming back to saying look what is the medical mandate is the medical mandate um just about um you know, the, the curative model, or does the medical mandate truly include healing in the deepest sense of the term? And if the medical mandate is not just about fixing problems, but is also about whole person care and healing, then there's no other way to it but to include the personhood of the caregiver uh, from the get-go. Wonderful. Thank you. And Norman, thank you for your question. I want to go back to Tilari and see if we can have one more questioner. Yes, and that's from Lisa Cole with Providence Hospice. Great. Go ahead, Lisa. Can you hear me? Hello? Yes, go ahead. We can hear you. Yes, uh, Dr. Glenn Patrizio from uh, Providence, the uh, Home Health and Hospice. And my question is, is we, our medical group are um, employed by an institution, and so the question is, how do you manage up? How do you convince the people that uh, you work for that this is something that we should uh, in, in, include in our um, in our practice? Boy, that's a great question about, um, for those maybe in the middle of the management structure, how can we leverage our position and our influence uh, to help our bigger organizations do the right thing? Michael? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, and I, I, I'm not sure I have the answer. Um, but I think if, uh, you know, if our organizations, you know, our organization look, look to patient and family satisfaction scores, and um, if we can make a link between those satisfaction scores um, and uh, staff morale and staff well-being, uh, and th those links are there, but if we can, if we can emphasize those links, that may be a possible way. Um, just the you know looking at the links between burnout and um, and, and physical illness and absenteeism, and so the whole question of staff retention um, 
as well as staff morale. Um, I think those combined with the the motive of having uh, having a, a clinical staff that are that are experiencing better morale, that are operating more effectively, and having patients and families that are more satisfied with their care. Um, you know, I think those, some of those factors uh, may be convincing, but I, I think probably others have more experience here, and I, I, I'd, be, I'd really like to learn how, how to do this better. Well, wonderful. And, and let me jump in with a brief comment uh, from my perspective. You know, I would suggest building a business case. And this is perhaps a bit of a cynical view, uh, but most large organizations uh, need to pay very good attention to their bottom line and their sustainability uh, as as well as does yours. And um, from some of what Michael has said and from his writings, um, I think we can make a fairly strong case to decrease turnover and improve productivity, however you measure that. And I do know, at least in your market of Portland, Oregon, um, physician recruitment is a challenge. Um, and the cost of turnover is tremendous. So one idea you may want to consider is thinking about this first and foremost from the business case of the decision makers in your organization, or I should say the business imperatives, and how could these kinds of changes um, be talked about in the context of their bottom line. Um, and so that's just one idea you may want to consider. Right. And and with that, with apologies, I have to say that that's all the time we have for questions. I'd love to go on, uh, but we are nearly at the end of our hour, and I really wanted to save two minutes um, both to wrap up. And so I'd now like to invite Dr. Carney for one minute if you have any closing thoughts or comments. Uh, thank you, David. Well, I guess very briefly, I just want to uh, acknowledge and thank my co-authors in this paper, Dr. Weininger, Dr. Vashon, Dr. Harrison, Dr. Mount. Um, and I, I guess a parting image that I'd like to uh, leave is is how we how we might move um, from uh, a form of protection uh, from stresses in our work. Um, that is uh, a bit like putting on a suit of armor in a very stressful situation uh, that can protect us but can also uh, cut us off from our patients, from our colleagues, uh, a sort of hard-hearted protection, to use that language, to move towards, and I think this is for developing self-awareness, developing mindfulness, still offers us protection, but it's more like the shield we have now protecting us is a porous shield that allows us protection but also allows engagement and allows us to be present in very stressful situations with a soft and open heart. And, and we need tools and a practice to help us keep our hearts open. And, and, and I'd really like to finish by reading, if I may, um, a very short poem by Wendell Berry. And... Um, I guess this speaks to where I personally find a lot of regeneration, which is in nature. It's called a piece of wild things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me 
the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and I'm free. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Carney, and thank you to all of you listeners for joining us today. Um, I want to remind you that this all is a author in the room, sponsored by the Journal of the American Medical Association and IHI. Thank you to all of you for being a part, and have a good day.